And welcome, friends, to Generations. Kevin Swanson, your host with you today. And we have a spiritual crisis in this nation. That's one thing. But we also have a social crisis. And we want to talk about that today. It's a serious crisis. And I believe it is a crisis. It hasn't been fixed yet. And I think we're still going in the wrong direction, not just in this country, but other Western nations as well. And I believe it's just extremely serious. The social crisis is unraveling a society. It's the breakdown of a civilization. The only thing keeping this building together, it seems, is the termites holding hands at this time. And that's just an expression that I like to use. But socialism, what's the problem with socialism? Well, socialism attempts a certain social theory. But at this point, socialism is more and more running out of other people's money. And at some point, a society cannot continue. If the foundations are destroyed, what do the righteous do? So when the foundations are destroyed around us, of course, we go back to God's word. But the underlying cause of the unraveling of society has got to be the breakdown of family. And I think that's intuitive to just about anybody because the family is the basic building block of society. And consequently, the breakdown of manhood and fatherhood and male headship and male involvement in the home, these sorts of things are just so crucial. So we get, want to get down to the root of the breakdown as best as we can, perhaps a little bit of historical analysis on the breakdown, but certainly bad worldviews, the, the lies, the deceptions, the stereotypes, the straw men, the caricatures promulgated by the left or the spirit of the age, the zeitgeist. And there are misconceptions concerning the solution. So we have all of these issues, but ultimately we want to ask the question, what is God's standard for family? What is God's standard for maleness, male roles, female roles, and so forth? And I'm so glad there's a new resource out to address this. And 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 this is a major issue. And I think pretty much every Christian leader in the country understands this. And that's why this is a resource for, for anybody who is concerned for what's going on all around us today. Professor Nancy Piercy has a new book out addressing the issue. It's called The Toxic War on Masculinity. How Christianity Reconciles the Sexes. Such a crucial, crucial book available at Amazon, pretty much anywhere online. Nancy Piercy teaches at Houston Christian University. She is the best-selling author of Total Truth, Saving Leonardo, and now The Toxic War on Masculinity. And she joins me again here on the Generations Broadcast. Welcome, Nancy. It's so good to have you back with us. Thank you, Kevin. I appreciate you inviting me back. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this is, this is a major issue. You know, am I overestimating this or exaggerating the issue? I mean, obviously you wrote the book, so we can't be exaggerating. But if you look at what's going on in society around us, the fundamental unraveling of the family and fatherhood and manhood, this is huge, isn't it? Yes. In fact, I start the book with a quote from Tony Evans. Everyone knows Tony Evans, mm -hmm. a well-known black pastor. And I love this quote from him. He basically says, the saga of a nation is the saga of its families writ large, but the saga of the family is the saga of its men writ large. Mm -hmm. And that really encapsulates it, doesn't it? But yes. Wow. The, the direction of a culture really is dependent on its view of masculinity. And that's why this issue is so crucial and, you know, is worth a whole book on mm -hmm. it. Mm -hmm. We're getting down into the foundations and footers and rebar 
of a society. Yeah, absolutely. So let's define the problem uh, on the front end. Men are dropping out. There seems to be something of a hatred of manhood. Uh, what is this? Why, why is there this hatred, and, and where did it come from? Well, my eye was caught by headlines like this one from the Washington Post, an article titled, Why Can't We Hate Men? And I thought, really? That is an illustration of how accepted, socially accepted it has become to express incredible hostility against men. A Huffington Post editor tweeted, hashtag, kill all men. Mm. And you can buy t-shirts that wow. say, so many men, so little ammunition. Oh, and wow. then there, there are books with titles that are extremely blunt, like, I hate men, and no good men. Mm-hmm. And are men mm-hmm. necessary? Mm-hmm. So this is what made me first pick up the topic. And by the way, and then I saw men jumping on the bandwagon too. A fairly well-known male author wrote a book, and he said, talking about healthy masculinity is like talking about healthy cancer. Mm-hmm. And this one's not in the book because it's more recent, but I bet you saw it. It was in the news. The director of the movie Avatar was in the move in the in the news saying uh, t- testosterone is a toxin that you have to work out of your system. Hmm. So it's no wonder that wow. in a recent survey, forty six percent of American men, so almost half of American men, agreed with the statement. These days, society seems to punish men just for acting like men. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And and you mm-hmm. know what, Kevin? I'm really concerned because it's. Even more on the younger men, um, they're, they're showing it even more. I quote a psych- psychotherapist who writes regularly for the Wall Street Journal. And she said, I'm seeing younger men come into my practice feeling defeated, demeaned, and demoralized. Yeah. Because they feel like they're growing up in a culture that's hostile to masculinity. Hmm. And so that's the next generation. If they're already being demoralized, then this is a serious problem. Mm-hmm. And it's worth, you know, Christian saying, you know, is where is this coming from? Yeah. And how can we fix it? And yeah. of course, that's what I was hoping to achieve in my book. You think it seeps into the church, it seeps into Christian families too. And it seems like, you know, just, I think it was Francis Schaeffer that said, you know, someone gets a worldview like they get the measles. They're not exactly sure where they picked it up. It, it affects us, doesn't it? Oh, yes. So I told my class at Houston Christian University that I was I was writing a book on masculinity and a male student shot back. What masculinity? It's been beaten out of us. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, I thought, mm-hmm. oh, OK, <laughs> you know, even right. the, even in the Christian world. And, and then I had a graduate student who uh, a woman who was in charge of the women's ministry at a very large Baptist church here in Houston. And she said, on Mother's Day, we hand out roses and tell the mothers they're wonderful. On Father's Day, we scold the men and tell them to do better. And huh. I thought, that's that's not the right approach. Right. You know, I, after hearing that, I was very careful not to take a scolding approach in my mm-hmm. book. Because mm-hmm. I, I think that the, the churches should be the ones who, where, that's where you should go to get built up mm-hmm. and encouraged and mm-hmm. affirmed in your understanding of being a Christian husband and father. Uh, yeah, I, I want to get to, you know, what is it to be a man and what is this? natural, uh, God-given 
nature and uh, and role that God has placed upon men. But can you give us a little bit of history? I mean, I'm a big history guy, and I know you put history into the book. And I say a little bit, you know, can't can't have time to go through the whole thing. But this thing really goes back to the Victorian age or the Industrial Revolution, doesn't it? I mean, this goes back a few years. Yes, I'm so glad you like history. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was afraid people would not, you know, some people are put off by that. But actually, if you want to get to the bottom of this toxic war on masculinity, many people think maybe you go back to the 1960s and second wave feminism. No, no, no. You really do have to go back to the Industrial Revolution. Mm-hmm. Because before that, husbands and fathers worked alongside their family all day, their wives and children. In the on the family farm, the family industry, the family business, and so the cultural expectations of men focus much more on their caretaking role. And, mm. and here's an interesting, surprising historical fact: most of the literature on child rearing back then, the literature to parents, was addressed to fathers. Huh. You, you go in, into your typical bookstore today, right? And they're almost mm. all to mothers. Sure. Mm-hmm. But back then, it was assumed that the father was the primary parent. And and so, where did we lose all that? Well, with the Industrial Revolution, Mm -hmm. the revolution takes work out of the home. Right. And so, of course, men had to have to follow their work out of the home into factories and offices. And for the first time in American history, they're not working with their family, people they love and have a moral bond with. Instead, they're working as individuals in competition with other men. And that's when you actually see the literature start to change because people began to complain, to protest that men were changing, that they were losing the caretaking ethos of the colonial era, that they were becoming individualistic, egocentric, self-centered, look out for number one, greedy and acquisitive. I'm using the language of the day. Right. And and even And, and drunk. And drunk, That's right? the next stage, <laughs> yeah, yes. Right. <laughs> the next stage. First, they're taken out of the home, mm-hmm. and then they lose the biblical ethic. So the Industrial Revolution also was a key part of the secularization of American society because people began to say, well, these large public institutions like the factories, the businesses, financial institutions, universities, and the state, that these should be run by scientific principles, by which they meant value free hmm. in other words don't bring your personal values into the public arena which is of course what we hear today and so that's another thing that you see already in the 19th century people began to say that men were becoming more secular they were not going to church as often they were not governing their behavior by christian principles and so the 19th century saw a huge increase in gambling drinking crime uh hmm fighting, gang activity, and and prostitution. The number of brothels mushroomed. Right. And so this is where, uh, you know, your earlier comment, they began to drink more. You know, sometimes a single fact can crystallize it. In 1830, Americans drank three times as much as they do today. Oh, so wow. it really was a, a definite social problem that mm-hmm. male behavior was you know, being disconnected from uh, biblical ethics. Right, right. And, and and then there was some self-fulfilling prophecy that came along through the literature as well. So, you know, you, you have Victorian literature that's always presenting the women and the children as almost victims of these of these men. 
Yes, um, exactly. For the first time, think of it this way. If values are kicked out of the public sphere, where will they be cultivated? Mm-hmm. In the private sphere. Right. And so, for the again, this was the first time ever in human history that women were said to be morally superior, spiritually and morally superior to men, and that women were set up as sort of the moral guardians of society. Okay. Mm-hmm. And as a result, it was women who drove a lot of the reform movements of the 19th century that were responding to these issues of men drinking and gambling and visiting prostitutes at much higher rates. And so there was a whole host of reform movements. But you put your finger on what was the most damaging part of that is that most of the reform movements were driven by women and they were addressing what were traditionally male vices. And so it did create tension between men and women. Okay. Mm-hmm. Here's how one historian puts it. This is one of my favorite historians. She says, there was little doubt as to the sex of the tavern keepers, slave masters, drunkards, and seducers. And, and so that it set up sort of a tension where, as you put it, yeah, men, women were in a sense told, it's your job to tame men. It's your job to civilize men, which is not a really good dynamic for yeah. positive male-female relations. Mm-hmm. Good point. Let's get down to a little bit more of the heart and soul of the book. You have two competing scripts for masculinity. What are these scripts? Yeah, so this is really interesting because it's coming out of a sociological study. And I'll give you some background that, that's not in the book. This book has proved to be the most controversial one I've ever written. <laughs> and that, Happens. And that actually, <laughs> yeah, it took me by surprise uh-huh. because my earlier book, uh, Love Thy Body deals with abortion, homosexuality, mm-hmm. transgenderism, which are real, you know, front issue. Sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, issues, front burner issues right now. But no, this one was more controversial. What I did is I taught it in classes. I led reading groups. I like to get a lot of feedback, you know, to rub off any rough edges. Mm-hmm. But when they would tell their family and friends that we're reading a book on masculinity, the first reaction invariably was, whose side is she on? Yeah. Right. Uh, with right. sort of a hostile tone, right? Mm-hmm. Whose side is she on? And by the way, the second question was always, and why is a woman writing a book on masculinity anyway? <laughs> but, so men tend to assume if a woman's writing the book, she's some male bashing feminist. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And more progressive types tend to just assume I was an angry, defense, reactionary culture warrior. Mm-hmm. And so I put this quote at the beginning of the book, this study, because it says you're not. You don't have to be pro or con. You know, you can you can accept the good script for masculinity and you can think critically about the secular script for masculinity. And and even though this was not a Christian who did this experiment, he's not a, uh, a secular sociologist, but he gets invited to speak all around the world. And so he came up with this very clever experiment where he would ask young men two questions. First, he says, what does it mean to be a good man? If you're at a funeral and then in the eulogy, somebody says he was a good man, what does that mean? And the sociologist said all around the world, young men had no problem answering that. They would immediately start listing honor, duty, integrity, sacrifice, do the right thing, look out for the little guy, be a protector, be a provider, be responsible. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And he'd say, where'd you learn that? And they'd say... I don't know. It's just in the air we breathe. Or if they were in a Western country, they would often say it's part of our Judeo-Christian heritage. And then he would have a follow-up question. 
He'd say, well, what does it mean if I say to you, man up, be a real man? And the young men would say, no, 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 that's completely different. That means be, be tough, be strong, never show weakness, win at all costs, suck it up, um, be competitive, get rich, get laid. Mm-hmm. I'm using their language. Mm-hmm. And so the sociologists concluded that universally, you know, around the globe, men do have sort of an innate, inherent sense of what it means to be a good man. You know, not just in Christian countries. As we would say, men are made in God's image. And they do understand that their unique masculine strengths are not given them just to get whatever they want, but to provide, protect, and even if necessary, fight for those that they love. But they do feel uh, a cultural pressure to be the quote-unquote real man, which does involve traits that might, you know, today we might consider more toxic. At least if disconnected from a moral ideal, it can slide into entitlement, dominance, control, and so on. And so I thought this was fascinating. On one hand, it's very encouraging Mm -hmm. that men do, in fact, know what the good man is. They do aspire to be that. And uh, whereas they don't respond very well to being called toxic, right? Mm -hmm. Most people wouldn't. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Well, and there's something natural about what God has created in men. Something of a you know, not just a biblical standard, but there's a natural standard about being a man, isn't there? Yes, it's part of general revelation, we might say. Right. Right, because general revelation is what we know just from being made in God's image and living in God's world, as opposed to uh, special revelation, which is the Bible. And in fact, I'll give you one more piece of good news, because it was another global study. It was by an anthropologist, not a Christian, and he w- he did the first ever cross-cultural study of concepts of masculinity. And of course, they differ some from culture to culture. But he found that there was a unified theme again. He said, um, he called it the three Ps, that all cultures expect that the good man will provide, protect, and procreate, meaning become a father, build into the next generation. And I thought, there it is again, right? This sort of innate, inherent, natural knowledge of what it means to be a good man. Hmm. And I think this is incredibly encouraging for Christians. That when, yeah. when we're promoting a biblical ethic for masculinity, we're not imposing something that's alien to the male character. It, in fact, fits what, with what men really are in the way, the design that God uh, made them with. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, men do bad things. For sure. You know, men sin against God. And by the way, women do too. That's easy, I think, sometimes to pit one against the other. We all have our sins. And it's easy to blame the other for, you know, being the big problem. But what what are the problems, the sins that men need to deal with? You know, you talk about abuse as well as abdication, things of this nature. What do you think are the, the big issues that men have to deal with, whether it be, you know, Christians in the church or just anybody what what are the what are the problems well what was interesting is that um l- let's start with the church because one of the reasons i wrote the book is i found that even in the church men split into two groups okay right? that there are there are groups of men who do very well and there are m- groups there's a group of men who's very abusive and so let me start with the good news um, okay. i put this at the front of the book too because i wanted to start with the good news mm-hmm. and, and and that is that um Let's let's set the scene. The scene is that 
in the secular culture, Christians and evangelicals in particular are often painted as these abusive, tyrannical, oppressive patriarchs. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I, um, in fact, I'll, I'll give you just one quote. This is a quote. It's easy to find a lot of them, but this was a quote by the co-founder of the Church Two movement, which followed the Me Too movement. And she said, the theology of male headship feeds the rape culture that we see permeating American Christianity today. Hmm. And I thought, okay, what happened is Christian social sciences, scientists like uh, psychologists and sociologists were reading these accusations and they were saying, where's your evidence? Right, sure. You you know, you're making these charges. Where's Mm -hmm. your data? Mm Mm-hmm. And so they went out and did the studies. And in my book, I quote some dozen or so studies that all found that the secular narrative is completely wrong, Mm -hmm. that Christian men who are committed and authentic in their faith, who attend church regularly, which they defined as at least Mm -hmm. three times a month, actually test out as the most loving and engaged husbands and fathers. Mm -hmm. Their wives test out as reporting the highest level of happiness with the way their husbands treat them. The evangelical fathers spend more time with their children than any other group. Mm. 3.5 hours more per week than secular men. Mm. And they also divorce at a lower rate than secular men, 35% lower than secular men. Mm -hmm. And then the real surprise is that, counter to the narrative, they actually have the lowest rate of domestic abuse and violence of any major group in America. I was reading the sociological literature to find this. I had to dig deeply Mm -hmm. into sociological journals Mm -hmm. to find this. And I thought, this needs to get out there. This needs to get out into the public, you know, and into churches so that churches can encourage men that those of them who are being very committed to their faith are doing a good job. We don't have to scold them, as I put it earlier. You know, we should encourage them. And support them. And it's the anecdotal evidence that often gets the press, of course. You know, you get a very bad story. And even within the church, you know, you have an occasional bad story that requires some church oversight and uh, and discipline. But, you know, what about the other 98% of the congregation that's, you know, doing very well? Again, it's, it's this anecdotal evidence tends to bias people's minds too much so. Well, and plus... You do have the the second group. You know, I started by saying the church itself has two groups. The pushback I always get, by the way, is, is you know, haven't we all heard that Christians divorce at the same rate as the rest of the culture? Mm-hmm. And so researchers did go back to the data, and they made that crucial distinction between men who are truly committed and evangelical men who are merely nominal. Right. Um, my students don't know, don't even know what the word nominal means, so I have to explain. Mm-hmm. N-O-M is Latin for name, so it means in name only. Mm. And these are men who might, in a survey like this, check the Baptist box, for example, but they don't really attend church, rarely if at all. It's more of a cultural background. And these men test out shockingly different. They do fit the toxic stereotypes. Okay. So their wives, we put the Mm. lowest level of happiness. Really? Wow. They're... Mm. They spend the least amount of time with their children. Mm-hmm. They divorce at a higher rate than any other group, including secular men, 20% higher than secular men. And they have the highest rate of domestic abuse and violence, even higher than secular men. 
And so what's the challenge to the church is that we have actually, you know, men who are better than secular men, but we've got men who are worse than oh, secular men, mm-hmm. but who are claiming the label, mm-hmm. you know, the identity of evangelical. So I suggest this gives us a, a real challenge. You know, how do we support the men who are doing well? How do we reach out to these nominal men mm-hmm. who, like you mentioned, are in, in a sense ruining the reputation of evangelicals mm-hmm. by people who see how they act? And how do we reach out to them and disciple them better and help them to realize that so what they've basically done is they've taken words like headship and submission, but they don't give them the biblical meaning. They mm-hmm. import a secular meaning you know, from the secular script for masculinity into those terms. And so they live, well, worse than secular men because they, they feel like they have religious justification. Right? You know, the, the secular guy who's hitting up his kids or whatever doesn't feel religious justification for it. But the nominal Christian does. That's and sad. So he mm-hmm. ends up being even worse yeah. than secular men. Yeah, very sad. Well, let's. we don't have much time left, sadly. Uh, it's hard to cover a 340-page book in about 20 minutes. But let's talk about how to train our sons. And, and perhaps just you know how to be good fathers, of course. But how do we prepare our sons to be you know, men uh, that follow Jesus and men who are you know, following the biblical standard for what it is to be a godly, biblical man as God has created him to be? Well, let me start by saying you that's exactly the right question because, you know, the next generation of men are the ones who are boys today. And so overcoming any sort of toxic behavior in men depends mostly on good fathers. I quote one psychiatrist who says, we're not going to have a better class of men until we have a better class of fathers. And unfortunately, here in America, 40%, 40% of kids are growing up apart from their natural fathers mm. and often never see them at all. It That's is right. the highest rate of single parenthood in the world. Yeah, yeah. What a thing to be on the top it's tough, of. <laughs> tough for America, Christian nation, you know, or once Christian exactly. nation. Right? Exactly. Mm. And, and so um, I did quote, however, from the, uh, there's a very extensive... A study done on how families effectively communicate their faith to the to the next generation. You know, how many families have children who follow them into the faith? It's a 35-year longitudinal study. So it won lots of awards. It's a very good, very good uh, study. And by the way, the researcher became a Christian while he was doing the study, <gasps> wow. which I thought was pretty cool. Mm. But here's what he found. He found two very surprising things. First of all, he found that fathers matter more than mothers. The fathers have influence whether they want to or not. The number of children who follow their parents into their religious faith depends more on the father than on the mother. My female students in the classroom don't really like this. You know, they, shouldn't mothers matter? Well, of course, they do matter. But fathers matter more. Mm-hmm. And the second thing that was surprising was it didn't matter if the father was a pillar of the church, a moral exemplar, perfect, perfectly orthodox theology, if he had all that, but he didn't have a warm, close relationship with his son, the son did not follow him into yeah, his faith. right, right. Well, it wasn't just sons. It was kids, mm-hmm. but we're thinking especially of sons here. 
if he did not have a close, warm relationship with the sun, the sun mm. did not follow him into the face. Wow. So it turns out that a warm, loving, close relationship wow. is the most important thing. Yes. And Nancy, you know what's interesting is we did a study of 10,000 millennials raised in Christian homes about eight years ago. Dr. Brian Ray from the National Home Education Research oh, yeah. Institute assisted with uh, with that. And we looked at, you know, type of education, uh, church background, et cetera, and all these influences. But the number one contributing factor to a child raised in the Christian church, remaining in a church, remaining in the faith, was bar none the relationship with father slash mother at 16 or 17 years of age. We asked that question is what was your relationship like at uh, 16, 17 years of age with your father and your mother? That was number one. That warm relationship was the number one contributing factor to that child staying in the faith. So Excellent. absolutely. Yeah. Excellent. And, you know, even secular studies are finding similar things. There was a, a, oh. an entire book written on fatherhood mm-hmm. by a secular researcher. And he, he looked at what makes a boy grow up with a strong sense of his masculinity. He was looking specifically at that, hmm. and, you know, with a secure, solid, healthy understanding of masculinity and he found the same thing from a secular perspective he said the father's own masculinity actually did not make a difference what made a difference is whether his father had a close warm loving relationship with his son so even the question here at the heart of you know how do we produce young men who are masculine that also depends on a warm close relationship Mm. with the father Hmm. That goes right to the heart of the issue, right to the heart of the issue. I'm so glad we're ending on this point. But folks, you've got to get the book, The Toxic War on Masculinity, How Christianity Reconciles the Sexes by our guest today, Nancy Piercy. And that uh, book is available at Amazon just about anywhere. So get your copy now. It's called The Toxic War on Masculinity. No need to be controversial at all. These are, this is just the facts, the truth, and, and uh, so needed today, so needed, Nancy. So just keep, keep, keep straight on the message, and, and uh, you know, by God's grace, we'll see some reformation, we pray. Good, yes, and thank you for the good work you're doing. I homeschooled my two kids, so I really love the work that you're mm. doing with homeschooling families. Mm, yes, well, thank you again. Nancy Percy, our guest today, God bless you. Appreciate your work. Thank you. And you have been listening to the Generations Radio Broadcast. If you'd like to interact with the radio program, email me directly at host at This is Kevin Swanson inviting you back again next time as we continue to lay down a vision for the next generation.